Father, we come under your word right now and we thank you for your presence and your power and your might. Lord, would you keep our hearts warm? Would you keep our souls stirred? Lord, would you have created a new, fresh longing for the nearness of God, not just for us, but for our families and our church and churches and our city. And Lord, we're going to leave that to you because only you can make something authentic and genuine. So Lord, in this moment, even now, as your word is being declared, reveal Jesus to us. That's all we want. Reveal the Christ. Reveal the anointed one. Reveal the precious Son of God. Lord, we need you desperately. Speak into our hearts, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. Paul told Timothy, dedicate yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Not just private reading of Scripture, public reading of Scripture. There is something about when the Scriptures are read out loud to a congregation. We're going to read 15 down to 21, and then we're going to, by God's grace, exposit it. We ourselves, this is Paul, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For, though, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul has now reached a point in his argument for the gospel of grace concerning the Gentiles who are being persuaded otherwise. He's now reached a point where he is transitioning from personal testimony to defend the authenticity of his message. He is now transitioning from personal testimony to teaching. Paul now is going to break down some theology to his people. And so he's now making this move. For the rest of this letter, he's really going to break down truth. He's going to go to the Old Testament and pull out pictures and foreshadowings. He's going to come to a place now where he's going to hammer these hearts with the revelation that God has given him. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a powerful thing. This is in light of Peter's hypocrisy, as we talked about last week. He springboards from that now, and he says, let me tell you what God says in his eternal word. Let me tell you what this is all about. And so he explains in verse 15 to verse 16, and what he does really is emphasize one truth he just wants to focus on one truth, which is going to be the one truth that we're going to focus on this morning. The truth of justification. The truth of justification. Now that's, a, that's a fancy term, isn't it not? But look at verse 16. He mentions justified three times in one verse. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, 
but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Justified, justified, justified. This is what Paul wants to emphasize on. This is what he wants to make so clear to the people of Galatia and to the people of God today. And he says here, I believe you can take out five truths about justification in these verses that we read together. Five truths about justification. What is justification? It's a legal term. It's a term that is simply defined as one who is counted as righteous or one who is regarded as innocent. So when you hear justify, what you hear is a person that has been declared innocent. It's a person who is deemed as one who has met the righteous requirement of God that he demands of us in order to be in right relationship with him. To be justified means that you are in a favorable position in light of God's coming judgment. To be justified means to be guiltless from any penalty that is demanded by the holiness of God in light of sin. Justified. And if there's five truths that we can take out of this text, here's truth number one. That justification is available to all men. This right standing, this innocence, is available for all men. Look what Paul says in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What is he trying to say there? If there is anybody on the face of the earth that should be in favor before God in terms of how God relates to them, it's the Jew. It's the Jew. Romans tells us that it is to the Jews that has been given the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the promises and the worship. It was the Jews who were God's chosen people at one point in history to be the representative of his holiness and his commands to the earth. And so if there's anybody, if there's any race, if there's any person, if there's any background that receives any type of favor, any invitation, any VIP pass into heaven, it's the Israelite, for sure. No argument about it. You compare God's dealing with this nation compared to all the other nations in history, and you realize that it was a privilege to be a Jew. If anybody's going to slip in the back of eternity, it was a man like Paul. It was a man like Peter. It was a descendant of Abraham in terms of the flesh. And Paul even uses that language by emphasizing some, look, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. See how he says that? Jews by birth, nobility, integrity. Yeah, we're not like those pagan heathen Gentiles that worship a plethora of gods and sensuality and in filth. He's making that language clear. But look what he says. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified. A person. Any person, doesn't matter who you are, no person, whether Jew by birth or wicked Gentile sinner, is justified by works. You know what Paul's saying here? Doesn't matter what your background is. Doesn't matter how clean your history is. Doesn't matter if you've ever drank alcohol before and you haven't cussed before and you haven't watched a rated R movie before. Doesn't matter if both your parents were Christians and you grew up in Sunday school your whole life as a young child and, and grew up into youth ministry and then served in whatever ministry later on. It does not matter. 
If you're that individual or the person that was bound to drugs, doesn't have two parents, grew up with a mother at home, all this mess, whatever it may be that somebody would consider as lowly or insignificant or damaged. It does not matter who you are. You need justification. This is what Paul's saying. You can't boast and we can't boast. Nobody here boasts. At the foot of the cross, we are all on an even playing field. And so justification is for all men because all men need it. All men need to be declared innocent. All men need to be declared righteous. Brings us to the second point. If that's the case, if that's the diagnosis of all humanity, that justification is for all men because all men are in need of it, then how do we attain it? Truth number two, justification is available through one work. This is what he says in verse 16. Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Nobody can be counted righteous apart from one reality, faith. Apart from one response, faith. Faith in what? Yes, we are not justified by works, but you can almost say that we are. But not our works, his work. And faith, trust, is the channel by which justification is received. Faith is the response to the knowledge and the understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. You know that, right? When we put our faith in Christ, we're not blindly believing in something. We are receiving it by hearing it. And as a response of hearing this truth, we now activate this faith in order to be connected and to benefit from it. Faith is trusting what Jesus said about himself. And what he has revealed to the apostles that later expounded on it. Faith is simply this, where you stop trusting in your own works and you trust in what he's done already. That's faith. That's faith. You think about repentance. You think about that word and what comes to mind right away? Turn from sin. Walk away from iniquity. Stop drinking it. Stop living in rebellion against God and turn and embrace Christ. Partly true. But we may, may we never forget that repentance, oftentimes in the scripture, emphasizes this. Just give up. Stop working for yourself. Fall at his feet. Stop trying to build your own righteousness. Is that not what Romans 10.3 says? Paul would pain for the Jewish people, his brethren. You know what he says? That they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. And being ignorant of the righteousness of God, you know what they do? They try to establish their own righteousness and do not, here's a beautiful word, submit to the righteousness of Christ. They don't just give up and say, it's your righteousness, it's not my own. And that's what repentance is in part, where you just fall at the understanding of who he is and you let go of everything else and you cling to that wooden beam on Calvary. Martin Luther, name familiar? The spearhead of the Reformation 500 years ago. We are Protestants, are we not? Protestants to protest, to protest against what? That in that time, the Roman Catholic Church dominated Europe and it dominated it in a very powerful way. And so many people were bound by this understanding of attaining eternal life. That you have to pay your way. 
You have to slave your way. You have to work your way. The same thing that we're dealing here with the Galatians. And one man had a revelation about the grace of God. But he was not so from the beginning. You're talking about a young man at the age of 13 that grew up with a brilliant mind who was later sent to study law, who attained his BA and he attained his master's. His nickname was the philosopher, this young man, Martin Luther. And he had a promising future. And one day he walks through a severe thunderstorm at the age of 21. And as he's traveling through, a thunderbolt comes and almost nails him. And he's terrified. So what does he do as a young man at 21 years old in this severe storm? He cries out to one of the saints, Saint Anne, save me, and I'll be a monk forever. I will submit myself to the service of God forever. And guess what? He ends up pulling through that thunderstorm, and he survives, and he gives up all his education, all his prestige, all his plans for the future, and he now, in his mind, is going to serve God forever. And he was an extraordinary monk. Prayer and fasting, not just that. Starving himself. Choosing to sleep without a blanket in a chilling room to the point where his bones would be affected. Whipping himself. Walking on his knees on a flight of stairs. For what purpose? Because he had this understanding. God is really angry with me. And so I got to please him. So here is my slavish obedience to you. Do you think this man was joyful? Do you think this man had an understanding of grace? Absolutely not. Until one day he himself, wanting to know more truth, wanting to grow in his knowledge of who God was, discovered the reality of justification by faith. And it so impacted the man that he could not contain it himself, but literally shook the world and we're still feeling the effects of it today. Justification is available through one work, which brings us to the third point. Justification is never available through our works. This is what Paul says. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. This is a simple truth about this. No matter how sacrificial, no matter how separated, no matter how strict, no matter how sober you are, no person will ever be able to impress God. That's how God has ordained it. That's how God sees it. You and I might esteem a man or two, but the way God views humanity is that all our works are worthless before him because we are all stained by sin regardless. And there's only one man who is so spotless in which he says, I'm well pleased. That is his own son. And so there is no available salvation through the law. Listen, the law, as we're going to discover in a few weeks, is not an invitation for you and I to attain our own salvation. The law serves to smite you and me and to overwhelm you and me with our understanding of the fallenness of our own nature. It is to literally crush us only for Christ in his grace to bind us up again. So this law was not intended by God as an invitation to impress God. 
It literally serves as a mirror to show us our own hideousness, to show us our own vileness and wretchedness, only for us to run and drive to the cross and receive mercy. That's what the law is all about. And in case anyone would be tempted to try to reach God through the law, because it's tempting, isn't it? We are a performance-based creation. We love to perform. We love to prove ourselves. If anybody is tempted, James adds some commentary on that. You want to work? You want to work yourself? You really want to do this? You really want to try to impress God? Let me give you the standard by the Holy Spirit in James 2.10. Look what he says. For whoever keeps the whole law, you want to keep the whole law, okay, but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. You want to work out your own salvation? You got to keep the whole law. I'm in. But hold up. You break one, it's like you broke all of them. Wait, how is that fair? It makes sense if you and I understand the law as a means to reach to God. If that's how the law is approached, to reach to God, then perhaps this illustration will help you and I in understanding how you break one, you break them all. Somebody the other day wanted to send me a sermon clip on my phone. And in doing so, they needed my number. And so I gave my number. And once they took my number down, I was waiting. Didn't get it. Didn't get it. I thought to myself, did this person get my number right? I gave the number. They repeated the number and they put it down, but I'm not getting anything. They're not reaching me. Only for me to ask for them to review if they got the right number down. And we realized that it was just one digit off. One digit off was enough for that person not to be able to reach me. And so it is with the law. One law broken, you can't reach God. This is what Paul is saying. This is what James is saying. You cannot reach God if you fail at one point. The same way you can't reach anybody if you get one number wrong from their phone. And so Paul continues now in verse 17, in this seemingly complex verse. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. What's Paul saying here? Paul now is answering perhaps an objection that's coming to the minds of these Judaizers. And look how crafty these guys were. Paul's now going to answer something that, the, that perhaps they're experiencing, perhaps they're being challenged with. He's saying here, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, which is by faith, which is, which is in grace, we too are found to be sinners, is then Christ a servant of sin? So this is perhaps what the argument was like. So you say that you need to embrace grace and walk away from the law, right? But the law is God's commands. Are you walking away from God's moral standard? That would be sin. And not only that, look, you're embracing grace. You're embracing it by faith. And look at you, Christians. You're a bunch of sinners. You guys can't even keep it together. And on top of that, you're encouraged to walk away from the law that would keep you in place? Surely then, if that's your idea of how you relate to God, Christ than as a servant of sin, to encourage you to walk away from the law and to embrace it simply by grace. So why don't you embrace the law in order to help you with your holiness and to help you 
secure your salvation. Do you see what they would be saying? And Paul boldly responds without shame to say, yes, we desire and are justified in Christ by faith. And yes, guess what? We do fall into sin because of our fallen nature. But no, Christ is not an advocate, nor does he encourage sin because of our understanding of his grace. So this is the fourth truth about justification. Justification does not mean instant perfection. Justification does not mean instant perfection. What do we mean by that? That when you come into right relationship with God, guess what happens? It happens in a moment when you put your faith in Christ. When that happens, you know what doesn't happen? You instantly becoming righteous in totality. That's just not true. Many of us in you can testify how really, if we can say even this word, pathetic our repentance was when we first got saved. That maybe even there was so much stumbling right after that and even confusion about how does this all work? I gave my life to Christ and I'm still fumbling around. And yes, you progressively see difference. You progressively see transformation. But it's not perfect repentance. And some might say, well, that makes the gospel powerless. To say that you and I are still pulled by temptation even after we give our lives to Christ. That we're still drawn to things in which we know that nailed Christ on the cross. How can that be? Is the gospel powerless because that happens after you and I get saved? No, I would argue it's even more powerful. Why? Because even after you and I accept Christ and our imperfections appear from time to time, Christ and his sacrifice and his blood is so powerful that it still keeps us and makes us blameless before the throne of God. It's a powerful gospel. It's a powerful gospel that goes before us in our failures when we do fall. But to say that this gospel does not affect our relationship with sin would be preaching a false gospel. Because it does. It does change the way you and I relate to sin. Some of us in here, we went last Thursday to talk to the group and we talked about that extensively on Friday. The Woodridge ministry that we go to every week. And one of the questions that somebody brought up in sincerity was this. So you're, you're saying you accept Jesus Christ, he changed it, yes. What happens if you still mess up? That's a good question. And this is the response that we gave. That when you receive Christ, it's not about immediate perfection, but it is about new heart direction. Do you hear that? It's not about immediate perfection. It is about new heart direction. That's what happens. You do relate to sin differently. You do see it differently. You do taste it differently. And Paul here is answering that objection by saying, Christ does not advocate it, but he is merciful to keep us in spite of it. That we do fall and that we do mistakes, yes. And Paul in verse 18 wants to say, you want to know who the real sinner is? This is so profound. You're accusing us of being transgressors, and you dare to go beyond attacking the gospel and attacking the character of Christ on top of that? Let me tell you who the real sinner is in light of this argument, and it's in verse 18. He says what? For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What is Paul saying there? 
When you and I give our lives to Christ, you know what happens? There's a tearing down. There's a tearing down of what? Any self-reliance, any self-righteousness, any attempt to pursue reconciliation and justification by your own strength. There is a tearing down of the works of the law being the means by which you receive God's approval. And you tear it down in repentance to the degree that the only thing that is standing before you and before God is the cross as a means of relating you back to God. And what Paul is saying is, hold on. If I rebuild what I tore down in light of the context which is trying to attain salvation by works, I'm actually the worst sinner. Do you see? What is he saying there? You're accusing the fumbling Christian who receives salvation by grace as a sinner. And you dare say it about the Son of God as well. But let me tell you who the real sinner is. The one who embraced it at one point and then later on comes to a conclusion that they want to work it out themselves. You're the real transgressor. Because that's making a statement, is it not? God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved son. He sends his world, his begotten son, to come to suffer throughout this world and to ultimately suffer on the cross. The plan of salvation laid out in such beauty and humility and Christ ultimately making a three-word statement on that cross, did he not? It is finished. And you Judaizers, whether you realize it or not, based on your own deeds, based on your theology and understanding how this works, you also are responding to that three-word statement by making your own three-word statement. No, it's not. What an insult to the grace of God. What an insult to the sacrifice that the Father made, that the Son made. For you to say, let me help you out. You dare look at that man on the cross to only say, thank you very much, but let me help you out. How dare you? You're the transgressor, not the one who received it by grace and is striving along the path of holiness and is seeking him and, yes, hating his sin, but still seeing sin within him. That person, in compared to you, Judaizer, that is trying to build up their own righteousness, though you tore it down at one point, you're worse off. What a profound statement. Can you imagine? In the eyes of God, the legalist is more filthy than the stumbling Christian. So Paul is hammering it without pulling any punches. And now he comes to the point in verse 19 where he describes what the law did for him if it did anything. For through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. You know what the law did for me, you Judaizers? Let me tell you what it did for me. It killed me. And I'm glad it did. It exhausted me. It punished me. It pulverized me because it showed me my powerlessness. It gave me commands and it did not equip me with the power to walk in it. It overwhelmed me. And ultimately through the law in which you're attempting to find life from, that same law actually slew me and brought me to a place where I so died that I can now come to life in God in Christ. So I'm thankful for the law to this, that it actually killed me so that I can have resurrection life. It killed any hope that I had in myself. It killed any sense of security I had in myself. And it literally forced me to come to a place where it's Jesus alone. That's what the law does. 
That's what the law is supposed to do. And they didn't get it. And he comes into this famous verse in verse 20. Loved and cherished by so many Christians, but maybe not lived out by as many that it should. I have been crucified with Christ. So we, we understand this text really as a text that promotes holiness. And it does. In a moment, we're going to talk about that. But this text, in light of the context, is further along arguing why he's dead to the law. Do you know why I do not live by the law to attain my salvation? Because I'm nailed to the cross with Christ. That Christ did not just come to die for me. Christ came and died as me. And how does that work? How can Paul say such a statement that years ago he was crucified with Christ? It's something that happens by faith. That when you put your faith in Christ, it's as though you climbed up with him and were nailed on that cross. Because he was your representative of mine. And because I was nailed to that cross, guess what? I died to the law. And everything that happened on that cross on my behalf is the only thing that brings me to God, not the law itself. You want to find me? I'm on the cross with Christ. I don't find anything on this law. It all happened on Calvary, and I joined Christ in that moment. We don't live to the law anymore because we are identified with Christ on Calvary. This is the essence of justification. But guess what? It does not end there. Because it brings us to our fifth point of what happens when a man is justified. Justification, although on the fourth point, does not bring instant perfection. It does bring us new life now. Justification brings us new life now. Paul could have ended his statement by saying, I've been crucified with Christ. But he doesn't say that only. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So something happened. I identified myself with Christ. It's as though I was nailed upon that tree. But guess what happened as an exchange? Christ now comes and lives in me. That's what happens. Oh, so justification. There's some very practical reality to it. Oh, you better believe it. Please hear this. Justification is not about you and I making a decision of trust so that we can move into heaven one day. Justification is that in the moment of trust, Christ moves into you and me. Don't limit it to going to one destination. Justification brings Christ in us forever. Do you think that does something to the way we live? Or is this just poetic theory here? No, it's real and it's raw and it's true and it's observable and measurable. He says, Christ now lives in me. Oh, you know what that means? Paul says this in light of justification, that when I was crucified with Christ, it wasn't just me dying to the law, it was me dying to Paul. If I were to ask every person here if you're saved by grace through faith, I'm sure every hand would go up. Now, if I were to follow it up with this question, would your hand stay up? Are you saved by grace through faith? Amen. Does Christ live in you? Does Christ live in you? I'm sure we would thin the crowds much more when we ask that question. Does he abide in you? Does he govern your thoughts? Does he guide your decisions? Does he convict you of wrong? Does he show you selfishness? Does he motivate you to selflessness? 
Do you consider him in the choices that you make? Is he there? Is he there? Is he there? When you say to somebody, yeah, I'm seeking God's will, do you really mean it? Does Christ abide in you? Does he take residence in you? Or is there vacancy there? Paul said, something happened to me when I got nailed on the cross. Christ moved in. And I'm scared that many have attempted to accept Christ while dismissing this component of justification. And you wonder why so many Christians are seeing so little, if any, fruit in their lives. Any sense of God's presence, any sense of God's protection and leading, and His will being unfolded as they live day by day. I wonder if it's because they fail to realize that justification is about Christ coming in and not just me going to God. Here's a parable that I heard just recently, and I hope it helps. I hope it shines a light. And maybe if you're in this place this morning, and you identify as a Christian, but you're not really a Christian. This little parable, it's a parable, it's not a real story. Well, maybe, hopefully, draw you nearer to him. It's a story of a man who owned a house. And in this house, it was a grand house, it was a big house, it was a lovely house. Two floors, five stories, rather five rooms on the top, five rooms on the bottom. One day this man receives a knock at the door, and he answers the door. And who's standing there? Jesus. And this man looks in the face of Jesus, and he says, Jesus, I heard about you. I heard that you forgive sins. I heard that you bless people. I heard that you give joy and peace. I heard, I heard that you do so much. Come on into my house. And this man takes Jesus by the hand, and without giving Jesus much to say, he says, Jesus, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you live in my house, and I'm going to let you live in the best room that I have, the master bedroom. And so he leads Jesus upstairs. He opens the door to the master bedroom and he shows him how everything is so new and he shows him the panoramic view outside, seeing the ocean, all these wonderful things. He says, Jesus, you're going to stay right here. And Jesus looks at him and with gentleness says, thank you so much. And the man leaves the room and he goes downstairs where his room was and he lays in bed. And as he lays in bed, he hears another knock at the door. And he wondered, who could be knocking so late? But he thought he would check. And so he goes to the door. And as he goes to the door, he peeks it open. And who's standing there? The devil. And the devil looks in. And he says, I want to come inside. He says, no, no, devil. I heard about you as well. And I heard about what you do to people. I heard about how you bind them. I heard how you lead them into great temptation. I heard how you overpower them. And you only stir the flesh even more. I want nothing to do with you. But the devil already had a foot in the door. And the man tried to close the door, and he couldn't. And the devil puts in his shoulder. And the man tried to shut the door, but he couldn't. And the devil finally comes inside. And when he comes inside, he wreaks havoc. And he came inside with these buckets of temptation and just threw it everywhere and polluted the whole place. And the man tried to fight the devil all night, was so exhausted. Finally, as the sun rose up, the devil slides through the back door, and this man is standing there, only in his peripheral vision to see Jesus coming down the stairs. He thought to himself, Jesus, forgot that you lived here. Jesus, did you not hear the commotion in this place? Look at what the devil did. Where were you, Jesus? You're living in my house. 
And Jesus looks and says, I understand that I'm living in your house, but you only gave me one room. I only live in one room. And the man says to himself, I found a solution, Jesus. You're right. Forgive me. I'm so sorry. From this moment on, I'm going to give you half of the rooms of this house. You can have the entire top floor. And I'll live on the bottom floor. Jesus doesn't argue. He says, thank you so much. Walks back upstairs. And the man, throughout that day, is exhausted and finally comes tonight again. Lays in bed. But this time the knock was even more violent. The whole first floor shook. And the man thought to himself, surely it cannot be who it was yesterday. But I'm going to find out. And as he comes to the door, that door bolts open. And in comes the devil again with a fresh batch of temptation and filth and vileness, only to pollute that room even more than it was the night before. And the man's there shouting and fighting and crying like many people today when it comes to their sin. And finally, the devil again picks himself up and leaves. The sun rises. Jesus comes back down the stairs. And this man now is frustrated. Jesus! I thought we made a deal here. I gave you five rooms, 50% of my house. And here the devil came in and looked all the mess that he made. Where were you, Jesus? He was angry, frustrated. And Jesus looks at him and says, listen, calm down. I know that you gave me five of your rooms. But there's still five left. So the man said to himself, I know what I'm going to do, Jesus. I understand what you're saying. It makes total sense. So this is what I'm going to propose to you. I'm going to give you nine of these rooms. But I'm going to keep my bedroom. Because there's some stuff in my bedroom, Jesus, that you wouldn't like. There's some things in there that would make you uncomfortable. There are some things that I've had in that room for a long time that I really don't want to let go of. And so Jesus, take nine of the rooms... But I'm going to keep this one room, my room, to myself. You don't mind, right, Jesus? Jesus says, thank you very much. And he goes back to his room upstairs. That night, this man is exhausted. He says, come on, it can't be him again. And so what does he do? He comes up to the door and his hand is trembling at this point. And he opens the door, same thing, same thing. This time Jesus walks down the stairs the next morning, and this man is weeping. Jesus, I'm exhausted. I can't keep fighting these things. Where is this peace? Where is this joy? Where is the victory, Jesus? And Jesus just lays it out flat. Because this man has been talking the whole time. Now it's time for Jesus to talk. Listen. I can't do anything for you. Because though you gave me nine rooms, you are still the master of the house. You still hold the title deed. I'm the guest. So instead of you inviting me into your house, why don't you just give me your house? Because as long as you own the house, you're in charge of defending your house, protecting your house, providing for your house. But not until you give me the key to your house and allow me to be the master and you the guest will anything change. 
So what does the man do? Goes into his room. He takes the deed. Goes into his pocket. He takes the key. I give it all to you, Jesus. You can have it all. Jesus says, thank you very much. Goes upstairs. That night... This man is now fearful, shaking like a leaf as he comes to the door. And as he's about to open the door, gets a tap on the shoulder. Turns around. Who is it? It's Jesus. And he looks at the man and says, excuse me, I believe I'm the owner of this house. Move aside, please. And what does Jesus do? Does he peer the door open and peek to see who it is? No, he throws the door open. He says, who's there? And it's the devil. And the devil's confused. He's looking at the address. He sees Jesus. He's looking on his GPS. He sees that it's Jesus. And as Jesus is standing there in glory and power and majesty, the devil steps back, bows his knee, and says, Sorry, sir, I must have come to the wrong house. What's the moral of the story? Don't get caught up in the details as much as this. Does Christ live in you? Are you experiencing the animating power of Christ in your life? Have you crucified yourself and allowed him to move in completely? Or do you have some rooms that you're keeping to yourself? Because Christ will not budge. He will not manifest. You will not experience the truth of what the Christian experience is unless you give it all to him. Some of you have nine rooms given to Jesus. You have not given that last room. Because you have some stuff in there that you really like. You can have all the conversations to convince Jesus all you want, but he wants the key. He wants to be master. And not until then will you see these promises in this book come to life. You want motivation to allow Jesus to have every room of your life? What does Paul say in the second part of verse 20? In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now look what Paul says. Who loved me and gave himself for me. What else do you need? He died for the world, yes. He died for the church, yes. But he died for you. He died for me, personally. And if he gave his life for you, how much more should you give your life for him? Spurgeon said, take these blessed words of the apostle and put them in your mouth as wafers with honey until they melt into your soul. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Five truths about justification. It's available for all men. It's available through one work. It's never available through our works. Does that mean that we're instantly perfected? Number five, but it does mean that there is a new heart direction. And Paul is making this case. The true power does not come by observing the law in your flesh. And he talks about that later on in Galatians. True power comes in when you yield to Christ completely. 
when you just give up and let him take up residence in you. Listen, we have to believe that by faith as you and I walk in this Christian life. Please hear this. Turn to Colossians 1 just to see what I'm speaking about here. In verse 28, look what Paul says in describing his ministry. In verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's his ministry. We preached, we taught, we discipled, because every true leader doesn't want to just see people saved. He wants to see them mature in Christ. That's what he's saying. But look how he describes in verse 29 about his efforts. For this I toil. So he's saying, I'm toiling here. That's a, it's a word that intensifies the word labor. Man, exhaustively do I toil for this purpose, struggling with, oh, well that, that, it changes everything now. Struggling with all his energy. His energy that he powerfully works within me. Do you see that? The partnership that comes in serving the Lord, in overcoming sin, in overcoming thought patterns, in overcoming all these different things, it comes with when you connect to the power source, which is Christ in you. But Christ can't be fully in you until all the rooms are given to him. And you see, so many people bullied by the devil like punching bags when the Bible tells us that he's under our feet. Jesus has laid the standard. And this is the invitation to maybe one, maybe two, maybe many. Get on the cross today and get nailed to it. And let him come and live in you. And when you do, people always ask this question, how do I know if I've given everything? And I've said this a hundred times, and I'll say it 101 times today. How do I know if I've given everything? Simple as this. You scan through your life. You analyze every component of who you are, the things that you love, the sins that you are more lenient on or more rather given over to. You analyze all of those things and you ask yourself very carefully, am I willing to give this up? And if you can say yes to all those things, you know that you've given up everything to Jesus. If you, can, if you hesitate, if you wonder, if you negotiate on any one of those things, then you've not given everything. That's, it's as simple as that. You want to know if every room is covered? Then you look into every room and see if Jesus is there. And if it's not, I can tell you this. You're not experiencing the crucified life. And that's God's standard for you and me. To live with his power, his energy, his animation daily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the simplicity of justification. And we thank you for how it changes us now. It positions us to a new life now. And we want to know the fullness of it. And so, Lord, in light of this message, we ask you to just expose anything in our hearts that's not been given over to you. And by your presence, Lord, by your word as it cuts deep, May this morning serve as the turning point for somebody that will give the title deed completely to you. And may they, as a result, experience Christ living in them powerfully, lively. And Lord, we know that your word says that we should not grieve the Holy Spirit. So even if those who have at one point given all those rooms, 
but have grieved the Holy Spirit and have kept Christ in the master bedroom when he can be freely moving about. We pray, Lord, for forgiveness for any sins in our lives, any rooms that we've reclaimed for ourselves. And we ask that you would cleanse us, Lord. Lord, help us believe that there is greater joy in making Christ more comfortable than our flesh. That when we focus on what he desires and what he longs for, we can experience true life. But when it becomes about us and Christ serving us, we do not benefit the fullness of your promises. And so, Lord, right now, before we even sing, we look to you in our hearts to say, Lord, again, just have it all. Have it all, Lord. Have it all. And, Lord, if there's anybody in here who has never even given that one point in their lives, let today be that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we worship, for anybody in here who has not made that decision, I have a verse for you. This is the Bible. It's not my opinion. 1 John 5, 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It does not matter what kind of life you're living, all the memories you're making, all the people that you know, all the money in the bank, I can guarantee you this. Say what you want. You don't have life. Because if you don't have the Son, the Bible says, you don't have life. Why don't you invite him in today and see how everything will be transformed in a moment. Make it your heart cry as you sit in that chair right now and ask him, Lord, come in. And you'll realize that that little parable that I just shared there, it won't just be a parable, it will be real. More real than you can imagine. You know if he's there. You know if somebody is occupying your heart. It's just there. See, some things can be explained, but more than anything, it has to be experienced. And these things that we just read about can be experienced when you just engage it with faith. Say, Lord, here's my trust. I need you. I want you. And watch what he'll do to you.